You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Most gracious and ever-living God, I pray at this time that in the end, uh, my words would fall away, but Jesus, your living word would remain. All this I ask in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As we begin our celebration, uh, this our 150th um, celebration, and invite you along with me to reflect on this portion uh, of Matthew's gospel, which is placed before us this morning. But as we begin, I share with you a story to begin from a friend of mine, and it was his uh, first Sunday after being ordained to the priesthood, and it was going to be his first opportunity um, to celebrate communion, and of course, because he was such a holy man, he wanted it to go perfect, um, everything about it. And he's telling me the story, and they had a 7.30 service, much like ours. It was over in the side transept there uh, at the cathedral. And he went to prepare the table at time for communion, and there was one cruet rather than two. And he thought, well, that's fine. It's just wine um, and not water. Uh, and he opened the cruet, uh, and it was just water um, and no wine. And he was a little discombobulated, but he turned and he looked to the congregation. He said, though I appreciate your confidence in me, um, I'll be back in just a moment. Uh, and so he had to walk across and go um, into the sacristy and get some wine and, and come back. And he hoped that the next service would go better. And it was their main service, and it was at the time which the bread is lifted and the bread is broken. And it came time for that moment, and he looked down, and there's a larger piece, and he couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, and so he said what he did was he, he, he wasn't a real genuflector, but he genuflected. He said he went down on one knee, and he's looking behind the altar thinking, well, maybe I knocked it off, uh, and it wasn't there on the floor. And he came back up. And he was still looking, he said he, he bowed very reverently, low um, to the table to look and see if he could find it. And, and granted, in the grand scheme of things, by way of salvation, all of this is completely irrelevant. Uh, but he is, like you and me, he wanted it to go great, not for pride, but for God. Um, and so he's uh, still searching there. And he went and he genuflected one more time. And he said as he did so, he saw that all the smaller um, pieces of bread were piled upon the larger piece, and he pulled it out, and he broke it. And after the service, he was greeting people, and he said this one woman came up to him, and she said, you know, that was really such a holy moment. Uh, and, and he said, praise the Lord. Uh, so it was one of those, but I, I share that with you because uh, as he recounted the story with me, it was one of those moments for him, blessedly from the very beginning, a message of dependence upon God and the sufficiency of God. From the very beginning, right out of the gate, what was clear for him was that message of dependence and on the sufficiency of God. And I begin as we, again, we celebrate our 150th today, and, and that message is the same for us as individuals as it is for us as a community of faith. We are dependent upon um, the sufficiency of God, yours and my security. Uh, you and I are equipped um, by the sufficiency of God um, rather than by our own um, power. And it being the second Sunday of Advent, 
We have uh, the, 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 the character that will introduce the main character is the person of John the Baptist. And of course, we hear his message um, every year at this time. We hear that John begins his ministry with a nine-word sermon, a nine-word sermon that he begins, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We hear that John appears uh, in the wilderness, a place um, for the people resonant of a time of God's provision, a place that was resonant of their need, a place where God had provided for them in the past. And we hear that John has a simple message and yet is a compelling message. And there's something about that message where the people recognize their need of it, even with the discomfort that it creates in the people then and the discomfort that it creates for you and for me as well. It's full of vivid imagery, is it not? You brood of vipers, um, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit befitting repentance, and do not say we have Abraham um, as our father, for I tell you, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. In essence, John tells the people, I don't care who your dad is. Uh, I don't care who your people are. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven um, is at hand. And the imagery about axes being laid at the root of the trees, uh, of the winnowing fork is in his hand, uh, the wheat and the chaff being separated and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, I should say that is rather vivid and startling imagery. And we hear that John is a man uh, with a mission. He is not uh, concerned about catering and fashioning his words for the congregation gathered. A message has been given to him. Tell the people um, to repent uh, and prepare for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not worried about clothing He's not worried about his diet. He's not worried about his housing. He's in the wilderness, and he is proclaiming this message. And when you hear the word repent, uh, unfortunately, that is a word, particularly in today's culture and climate, repent is a beautiful word, but it's been hijacked, and it's been misappropriated and misused. Because most of us, when you hear the word repent, immediately you think of hypocrisy, Uh, You think of self-righteousness. You think of people with, as Jesus would say, planks um, in their eye pointing out the speck in the eyes of others. Uh, We hear that word repentance and we think of um, all of those things negatively. But what I would like to share with you, it's it's a beautiful word. And the reason is, imagine a world, and I shudder to imagine a world without repentance. That word repentance, metanoia, means to change one's mind. It means to change one's direction. And imagine life, imagine relationships with no opportunity or ability to change your mind. Imagine life with no opportunity um, to change your direction. Imagine life um, as it is and everyone um, is stuck. Nothing can change, nothing will change. It's sort of the worst of stoicism. Uh, We just have to get on with it This is what it is. We need to make the most of it and move on. Imagine a world um, where forgiveness is impossible, uh, where reconciliation is impossible too, where basically all of us are the worst version of ourselves, and that's the final word. That is is a world without repentance. Uh, That is that word which sadly has been 
hijacked and misused. But what we see in this call um, to repentance, not only does John call us to it, but wonderfully what we hear is the one is coming who will enable it. Because also as well, if we're, if we're called to repent and it's dependent upon uh, our power and our abilities, I don't know about you, but I find that uh, a word completely lacking in hope. My track record of changing um, my behaviors on my own, my track record uh, of changing my direction on my own, my track record of managing my thoughts um, on my own, uh, we don't need details um, about that. It's not great, and I don't think I'm alone. I think that's true of you as well. Humanity needs someone beyond ourselves uh, with the power sufficient to bring about the change and the hope in our lives, which we cannot produce um, on our own. And Jesus, in fact, does come to be the means of that change for you and for me. Jesus comes into the world um, as a Savior, but He also comes into the world necessarily to judge. And when I talk about uh, this judgment, interestingly, those words, John, repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. One chapter later, those will be the words which Jesus uses as He begins His ministry of preaching after John's imprisonment. Those same words will be shared. But what I would like to say to you um, is, is this, is that this judgment which Jesus brings is actually the means of our hope, and it's the means of our deliverance. When, when you and I um, judge, we rarely do it well. We're called to make discernment, certainly. We're called to be alert and awake, but, but we don't handle judgment well. But Jesus comes into the world to actually judge the powers of sin and death. His judgment is a judgment which actually leads to life. It's a judgment which leads to restoration. It's a judgment which leads to freedom because Jesus has come into the world to judge, to defeat, and to put away ultimately the powers of sin and death, that which separates us from God and separates us from one another. Jesus' judgment uh, comes in order that we might be freed that we might be saved, uh, that we might be restored. And John prepares about he who is to come. And later in Matthew's gospel, you may remember this, John sends messengers uh, to Jesus. And the question John asks of Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one um, to come? Or should we look for another? And it's easy to imagine any number of reasons for that. Certainly uh, one would be John's wanting to make certain. He is in um, Herod's dungeon, and he realizes that this is not going to turn out well, and he wonders, has his life uh, and his efforts been in vain? And he sends words, are you the one, or should we look um, for another? But I would imagine as well, part of that question also comes from the reality um, that Jesus's ministry looks dramatically different than that which was expected. Even to his closest followers, because as Jesus um, brings this necessary judgment, uh, what we see is that it's across the board. Um, it's to all, and Jesus is keeping fellowship and company um, with people that religious people would have been entirely described. One of the wonderful things about the message of John the Baptist, this call to repent, is it's across the board. It applies to everyone. And we see that Jesus in His ministry will be with both religious leaders um, and those who would be seen as the greatest of outcasts across the board. Jesus' desire to come that we might be saved, that we might be restored. 
And interestingly, Jesus' response to the disciples of John, He says this, go and tell John what you hear and also what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What we see is that Jesus has come to accomplish, uh, to free, to deliver, to restore um, the entirety uh, of His creation. He's come to ransom and to redeem us. He's come to accomplish what you and I are not able to accomplish um, on our own. Uh, I mentioned we've, uh, this is our 150th, and along with you, I've uh, been sort of thinking about some of our life and, of course, the, the wonderful and gracious reality. I mentioned dependence and God's sufficiency from the beginning to this day and beyond. Uh, we are grounded and based uh, in the rock and the cornerstone that is um, Jesus Christ. But if you remember our party we had a while back, those of you were there on that Thursday, we, uh, they had a brief history, and it was almost, I found it almost comical, the history, because as soon as something good happened, something bad happened. Uh, the church was founded, and things were going along well, and then there was an epidemic of cholera, uh, and things were going along well, and then there was a fire, uh, and things were going along well, and then there was a depression which swept across the country um, and across our community as well. If y'all remember, there was a Saturday Night Live skit, Debbie Downer. Um, it was Debbie Downer. As soon as things are going well, it's kind of, you know, the people are talking, gosh, it's a beautiful sunny day. We're probably going to get cancer. Uh, that was Debbie Downer and Saturday Night Live. That's what it was, that's what it was like. We had this, it's like it was great, uh, and, then this, uh, and then this happened. Uh, but wonderfully, we see God's gracious provision over um, these many years sustaining um, this community of faith. But I, I share with you also, as I was reading through some of the history, you may have noticed uh, out on the corner uh, of our building at 20th and 6th out there, there is a statue. Uh, there's a statue placed by one of our, our former rectors. Uh, the statue is the Compassionate Christ, one of our former rectors, John Turner. Uh, some of you may remember. Betsy, I hope you do. Um, remember uh, John Turner, one of our beloved rectors of many years. Uh, there, the original statue uh, is actually in Copenhagen uh, in Denmark, uh, and it's in the, uh, the church of, uh, if I remember correctly, the Church of Our Lady, uh, or the Copenhagen Cathedral is, is how it's known. And, and the story is there was a famous sculptor, and this in fact is true, Bertel um, Thorvaldsen was a, was a renowned sculptor, uh, just looked at as one of the greats on par with the ancients. And he created a statue uh, of Christ, and he did it originally in clay. Uh, and in the statue, Jesus' head is is back and his arms are up, uh, very much the, the symbol uh, and the embodiment of power and of victory. And the statue was done, uh, done in clay, and he left his workshop to leave it for a few days to allow it to set, allow it to dry. And apparently during that time, there was a tremendous storm uh, and as a result of the tremendous storm, tremendous rain, and in the workshop it became incredibly um, damp uh, and wet in there. Uh, and when Thorvaldsen returned, uh, because of the clay and because of the moisture, the, the head which had been back had, had drooped, uh, the arms um, which had been up um, had lowered. Uh, 
and he took a hammer um, to destroy um, and to begin again that sculpture which he had created, which was now ruined, but he couldn't bring himself to destroy it, and he dropped the hammer, and he left for a number of days. And after the number of days, he returned um, with a friend, this time with the intent um, to destroy the sculpture um, that had been ruined. Uh, and we are told that as they entered the workshop, they stopped uh, and looked upon the statue with awe. Uh, it was now bathed in light, we're told, and the lowered arms no longer depicted defeat. Instead, they revealed the depth of Christ's compassion, His sympathetic arms encircling the sorrowing and needy. The head was bowed low with the countenance that seemed to say, I understand your trials um, and your sorrows. We hear this imagery um, which John shares, and again, it's necessarily, it's vivid, um, and it is jarring. And he speaks about the one who is to come, and there is the call, rightly, um, to repentance. But we hear that that message of repentance is an invitation um, to life. It is an invitation, and the one to whom we turn is the one who comes to seek us. Uh, In all of our weariness and all of our heavy laden, and all of our captivity. Uh, He comes, yes, with might, um, but He comes with mercy. And His judgment is not intended to destroy us, um, but to free us, to recognize that which would destroy us uh, and to address it Himself. One who comes and who says to us, I understand your trials um, and I understand your sorrows. The one whom the Scriptures will refer to as a man of sorrows Himself who comes to identify with us. And of course, we have those words which Jesus will speak in the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel as he looks out upon the people and he says those words um, that we hear every Sunday as we celebrate communion among those comfortable words, come unto me all ye that travail and are heavy laden uh, and I will refresh you. We see the ultimate nature and the character of our God who comes that we might be delivered, who comes that we might be secure. And we see and we hear again that that deliverance and that security aren't in our ability to bring change to ourselves, uh, but in our turning to the one who has already turned toward us. That John uses that imagery of the axe being laid um, at the root uh, of the tree. What we will see as Jesus' ministry progresses, of course, is that he will be the one um, who was torn down on our behalf. Um, He will be the one who is placed um, on the tree um, on our behalf. So I hope you hear again uh, the message this day of a God who comes into the world, yes, um, um, to judge and to diagnose, um, but ultimately in order for our life, um, that you and I have one to whom we can turn who has turned to us, uh, and we can find in our dependence upon Him His sufficiency for our life now and always. And as we hear this, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks and praise that you've come forth into the world and that you will come again. We thank you that you are um, the one um, who necessarily uh, issues judgment in order that we might be free. I pray that you would draw us to you in all our weariness and all the ways in which we are heavy laden, that we might find in you our refreshment. And all this we ask in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.